we're starting a new series we're calling Family 2.0. I don't know we need an upgrade as much as we need to reboot the family. And uh, this is a series that you're going to discover is for everyone, whether you're married, single, divorced, widowed, just a kid, you are a part of the family. But the reason I've decided to take on this topic is because the family as God designed it is in chaos. The family as God designed it is in a mess. So we want to go back to the Bible, back to the foundation for living in this series, and we want to discover what God's original plan was, what he intentionally planned for the family, and how do we maybe get back to that? I don't know. You're going to have to decide on your own. Now, if you're questioning whether the family is in a mess, let me just give you some statistics. 40% of Americans believe that marriage is becoming obsolete. Let me tell you why that's so scary. As we're going to see in this series, marriage is actually the foundation for family. And so if we believe that marriage is obsolete, then it won't be long that we'll feel like the family is kind of obsolete. So there's one. Here's another one. 78% of 18 to 29-year-olds approve of same-sex marriage. Now, a couple of generations ago, if somebody would have said same-sex marriage, <laughs> we'd have said same-sex what? You know? But now we find out that our younger generation, which is going to be the leaders of our next generation, say, hey, we're cool with it. Now, we're going to talk about it in this series, and we have to talk about it in this series it's hardly a week that goes by that the press, the media is not contacting us saying, what is the church's position on same-sex marriage? And this is our answer. We don't have a church position. We have a biblical position. And we will discuss this on our own terms. We won't discuss it in the media. So we're going to be talking about it in this series. But let me just say this about same-sex marriage. A lot of people will say, same-sex marriage is going to destroy the foundation of marriage as God intended it. Well, that's not true. Uh, same-sex marriage is probably not a threat to my marriage. I, I love you guys, but I'm probably never going to leave Laura for a dude. I'm just telling you right now. That's, that's really not, you know. I'm going to tell you what's going to destroy the foundation of marriage. It's divorce. And it's funny how so many of us want to get up in arms about same-sex marriage. And I said, we'll look at it from a biblical perspective. But we don't have a lot of problems about getting divorced and remarried outside of what the Bible says are reasons you can get divorced and remarried. So let's talk about that, right? I mean, the reality is 48% of first-time marriages in America are going to end in divorce. 60% of second marriages will end in divorce. 73% of third marriages are going to end in divorce. As a result of that, 52% of the children in America live in a two-parent home. That means there's almost 50% of the kids in our country who are living with a single parent. And a lot of you single parents, this is, this is not an indictment on you. A lot of you, I know you, you're incredibly godly, and the job you're doing is phenomenal, and we're going to talk about how you can be an incredible single parent because a lot of you didn't ask for this. But my point is, it's not what God intended the family to be. But it probably explains some of the following statistics. 75% of all high school students have used addictive substances including tobacco, alcohol, marijuana, and cocaine. But the one that's really troubling is this one. 46% of all high school students currently use addictive substances. Now, this next statistic, it blew my mind, and I had to check every source I could to make sure it was reliable, but this is what I came up with, and I may have, I may have erred on the low side a little bit. 30% of teenage girls in America, three out of every 10 teenage girls in America will become pregnant. Three out of 10. That is double the rate of any other developed country. Three out of 10. Of those girls that will become pregnant, less than 2% will actually go to college and get a degree. 80% of teenage dads will not marry the mother of their child, which probably explains why 21% of all pregnancies in the U.S. end in abortion. One out of five children aborted. It's not what God planned. It's not how God intended the family 
to work. Now, we're going to address these issues uh, over the next few weeks. I'm going to spend the next few weeks talking about family. Uh, then we're going to take a one-week break, and the Watoto Children's Choir is going to be here from Uganda. We always love them being here. And then I'm going to immediately go into a series on marriage. And we're going to talk about what does the Bible say about same-sex marriage? What does the Bible have to say about abortion and the sanctity of life? What does the Bible have to say about divorce and remarriage? You know, you can get divorced any reason you want, but the Bible says there's really only a couple of reasons, unless you want to go back and marry the person you're divorced, that you can actually marry somebody else. So we're going to talk about all these things. We're going to be in the deep weeds for a while, but I want you to know, my goal in this series is not to beat you up. I think you know me better than that. It's not to make you feel guilty over your past or about maybe spending part of your life coloring outside the lines as God intended. In fact, the opposite is true. My goal in this series is to encourage you that regardless of what you've done in the past, there is a future where you can experience God's blessing. You know, our mission statement here at Hope is pretty simple. Love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and, and maybe it's taken me 20 years to get to this series, but I feel like we've, we've spent 20 years building a foundation that says we are gonna love you where you are, regardless of your past, your baggage, your issues, regardless of what you've been involved in, we're gonna love you, but we don't want you to stay where you are. Because we believe that God has an incredible plan for all of our lives. So as a church, we want to come alongside each other. And we want to encourage each other to be the person that God created us to be through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we want to do in this series. But for you to become the person that God created you to be. For you to be able to unchain and unshackle yourself from the past and move forward into God's future that he has planned for you. You've got to know what it looks like. And at some point in your life, you have to understand what God's guidelines are. What are his standards from life? Not societies, but what are God's guidelines? I like to think of it this way. I, I like to think of it like a parameter. And God's like, this, this is the parameter in which I've designed for you to live life. If you want to experience the life the way I've created it. And if you live within the parameter, my guidelines, my rules, my precepts, my principles, you've positioned yourself to be blessable. We'll use that word. Now, if you choose to live outside the guidelines, I think God says, doesn't mean I hate you. It doesn't mean I'm coming after you, but you're not in a position that you're going to experience my blessing. You're kind of on your own outside of the parameters. So over this series, I want us to talk about uh, what does life look like from God's perspective? What does family look like from God's perspective, his word? What does marriage look like from God's perspective? And I'm just going to point you to God's word. Now, let me tell you, we believe here at Hope that God's word is absolute truth. And I know that some struggle with that because... We live in a world where there is no absolute truth anymore. But here's the problem. If there's no absolute truth, then, then, then all of a sudden life is based on feelings or polls or opinions or political correctness. We believe that life should be based on the absolute truth of God's word. I know that sounds old-fashioned, but hey, that's, that's kind of where we are. That's where we're coming from. So over the next few weeks, I'm just going to present God's word to you. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to... I'm just going to present God's word to you. At the end of the day, you're going to have to decide... Do I want to live within the parameters of God's word? It's really totally up to you. Uh, you know, there's, there's an old saying we had in California, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him what? Uh, we, we said surf, but we'll go with drink, okay? You can, lead, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And, and I'm going to tell you, regardless of, of how this goes down, and regardless what you decide or don't decide, I'm still going to love you where you are, and I'm still going to be your friend. And I'm still going to encourage you to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ so you can experience God's best in your life. So how do you kick off a series like this? Well, we're going to talk about how did we get in this mess. 
And we begin by looking at the story of Adam and Eve. And right away, I know that some of you think that the story of Adam and Eve is a myth. And I'll tell you why you think it's a myth. It's because you were a freshman in college. And a professor in a tweed jacket with elbow patches told you that it was a myth, right? And he says something like, how in the world could you base your life, your eternal destiny, on two naked people living in a garden eating a piece of fruit, right? What's interesting is we don't base anything else in life on something we learned from a professor our freshman year of college. Let's be honest. But a lot of people go and they just get blown away. It's a, I've been, it's a lie. It's not true. Let me tell you why I believe the story of Adam and Eve really happened. I believe it happened because Jesus believed it happened. All you have to do is read the Gospels, the life of Jesus Christ, and you will discover that Jesus talked about Adam and Eve as if they were real people. For example, you go to Matthew chapter 19. Jesus actually based an argument on Adam and Eve. Would he do that if they were not real people? You go to Luke chapter 3, there's a genealogy where it shows us how Adam and Jesus are actually related to each other. So Jesus believed that Adam and Eve were real people, and since Jesus is the one who predicted his own death and resurrection and pulled it off, I'm going to side with him. Because I don't think any of our college professors actually did that, right? So I believe that the story of Adam and Eve is true, and I know that that explanation is way too simple for many of you. You're a lot smarter than I am. I was a PE major. I'm simple. I'm just going to go with the guy who rose from the dead, okay? I'm just going to go with him. So Genesis chapter 3, if you have your Bible, if not, we'll put the verses up on the screen. Great time to download the Get Hope app on your smartphone if you'd like to do that. But uh, let's just begin. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. You've heard the story. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, are you kidding me? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. By the way, they're already kind of lying because God never said you can't touch it. I think they could have played catch with it, soccer with it. God said just don't eat of it, right? This is what the serpent said. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, I'm going to dig into these verses in Genesis chapter 3, but before I do so, I, maybe you've never thought about it this way, but all of us, as we sit here right now, right, we all have uh, biological characteristics that have been passed down to us from Adam and Eve. In fact, it doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter where you were born. We are all related because we are all descendants of Adam and Eve. Have you ever thought about that? Just turn to the person beside you and say, hi, cousin, happy new year. See, we're all, we're all family. We are all in this together, right? But see, not only do we have physical characteristics that we receive from Adam and Eve, we also have spiritual characteristics that they pass down to us. In other words, we all have these, I'll call them spiritual genetic tendencies that we live out day to day because of the fall of the first family. And I'm not talking about Barack and Michelle, okay? I'm talking about Adam and Eve. And I want you to think about it this way. Before Genesis chapter three, what we just read, every person on earth, and again, at that time, it was only Adam and Eve, but every person on earth was in a perfect relationship with God and they were in a perfect relationship with each other. What an environment. But in just a matter of a few verses, every person on earth was in a broken relationship with God and a broken relationship 
with each other. In other words, in that millisecond where Adam and Eve made the conscious decision to disobey God, sin entered into the human race. Sin entered into every family on earth. Now, here's my question this weekend. What's the result? What came with sin? Well, what we're going to see in Genesis chapter 3, there were three characteristics that made their debut, we'll use that term, their debut into the human race because of sin. And every one of us sitting here this weekend, we suffer with these because of Adam and Eve. Here's the first one, shame. Shame. Let me show you what it says. Pick it up in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 3. Then the eyes of both of them were open. Okay, remember they ate the fruit. And guess what? The serpent was right. All of a sudden they knew the difference between good and evil. Up till now, they've only experienced good. There was no evil, but they brought evil into the world, and they sense, uh-oh, something has changed. And notice what it says. They realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And I used to envision, you know, Jesus looking behind through bushes and behind trees and over the rock, Adam, where are you? But in the Hebrew, this is what it says, Adam, why are you where you are? You've never hidden from me before. You've always run to greet me. Why are you where you are? And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. See, now they knew that something's going on. Remember what, uh, when God said, if you eat of the tree, you're going to die? And sure enough, they died. They began the process of dying physically, but instantly they died spiritually. And they knew something was right, and they had done something wrong, and they had kind of crossed over to the dark side, and now they're not so comfortable with God, right? Now, understand up until this point. Adam and Eve, they had never felt shame before. They had never experienced shame before. But now they're naked and they're like, wow, I'm ashamed. You know, you ever dream that you were naked and how ashamed you are? I have a dream on a regular basis. I'm sure there's a reason. I'll go to counseling. But I get up here to speak quite often. I look down and I don't have my pants on. And I'm like, oh, man, I forgot my pants. And I'm trying to get my Bible down here, my notes and stuff. It is such a relief when you wake up. You may, oh, man, I'm so glad that was a dream, right? Last thing Laura checks for, I leave the house every weekend. Honey, you got your pants? Yeah, I'm ready to go. And, and you know what? It's interesting. I drove all the way to work one day and got off at US1 at the off-ramp there at Walnut. I, I looked down, I'm barefooted. I forgot to wear shoes. I mean, is that a sign? I went in Target barefooted and bought a pair of sandals. I came back up and I gave the cashier the tag and she said, well, where are the shoes? I said, I'm wearing them. I forgot my shoes today. She reached across the cashier, patted me on the head. And she said, bless your heart. You know, I mean, it's just awesome. Bless your heart. That's the joys of getting my age, right? But anyway, so far I hadn't forgotten my pants. But anyway. In the same way, Adam and Eve, not maybe in the same way, but see, they're experiencing the shame, and immediately, what do they do? Something's not right. They try to cover up. First, they try to hide from God, then they try to hide from each other. By the way, I've read this story my whole life, and have you ever thought, well, why are they covering up? What's the problem? What are they hiding from? They're the only two people on earth, right? They haven't had children yet to walk in on them, so they shouldn't have to be worried about that. It's, I mean, it's just Adam and Eve. And the animals, I mean, are the monkeys going, you know, laughing and giggling? I don't know, you know. I don't know about you. I don't really care if the dog sees me naked. You know, it's not that big a deal to me, but they're covering up. So God asked them in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Probing question, no one told them. It's that sense of shame. It began right here in Genesis chapter three. And I'm just gonna let you know, because of Genesis chapter three, every one of us has carried that sense of shame from that point on. Not necessarily, it's symbolic here, not necessarily the shame of being naked physically, but the shame of being naked spiritually. 
the sense that something's not right between us and God. And so what do we do when we are ashamed, when we know something's not right? We hide. We don't go out of our way to come to church. We make sure we avoid our small group, any Christian friend who might hold us accountable for anything because we know something's not right. There's a spiritual nakedness that we experience. In fact, let me show you a couple of verses that address this issue of spiritual shame. Revelation 3.18 says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And if you read the context, it's to the churches in Revelation, and he's talking, God is talking about spiritual nakedness, spiritual shame. Isaiah 61, verse 10, I delight greatly in the Lord, my soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation, and he has arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. And what God was saying there, there's only one way Only one way that your spiritual shame can be covered, and that is to be clothed in the righteousness, to be covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm kind of a weird personality, and I'm a lot more insecure than you realize, but I really struggle with this sense of shame in my life. And I don't know if it's because the hardcore Baptist guilt that I grew up with, maybe for you it's the Catholic guilt. I have never in my life felt good enough. I have never once felt like I was qualified to sit up here on the weekends and do what I do. And you know what's interesting? I'm not anywhere near as bad as most of you, right? (laughs) I'm just being honest. I mean, if I'm feeling really bad about myself, I schedule some of you to come in for counseling. I mean, you walk out feeling horrible because I'm a horrible counselor, but I feel really good about me when you leave, you know? But let's be honest. At some level, don't we all struggle with shame over our behavior, our life? Our past, maybe. In fact, let me ask you a question. Show of hands as church, we can be honest today. Since you became a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've done something in your life, even as a Christian, where you messed up and you were just ashamed of yourself, just raise your hand. Say, yeah, I've done that, right? Now hold your hand up. If you're not holding your hand up, you need to leave because you're too good for this church, okay? <laughs> we're going to screw you up, right? Now, now, why did I ask? Because here's the deal. Every one of us deal with shame. Everyone, and it's because Satan is the great accuser. We'll talk about this some other time. But Satan loves to whisper in our ear as Christians, you know what? You ought to be ashamed. There's nobody else like you. You ought to be ashamed. There is nobody at that church as bad as you. Let me tell you what the right response to that is. You're right, Satan. I probably should be ashamed. I've blown it. I missed the mark all the time. But God. See, that's the key part but God. My life is messy, but God. I have all this baggage, but God. I have things in my life I am not proud of, but God. Let me tell you something, just kind of as a side note. If you're here this weekend and you're dealing with shame in your life over your behavior, your past, there's only one thing that can cover your shame, and it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'll give you an example. The apostle Paul, you heard of that guy? wrote half of the New Testament, rock star theologically, okay? He's writing the book of Romans, the most theological, most doctrinal book in the Bible. And he gets to the end of Romans chapter seven. He says, I'm a mess. This is the apostle Paul. I'm a mess. The things I should be doing, I'm not doing. You ever feel like that? The things I know I ought to be staying away from, I just keep doing. I am a mess. In fact, this is his term, wretched man that I am. And then it's as if the Holy Spirit just kind of hits him upside the head. 
And he says, oh yeah, now I remember, chapter eight, verse one, Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your shame is covered. Let me tell you something, that is the gospel in a nutshell. We just celebrated Christmas. You know, Jesus never told us to celebrate his birth. We do a heck of a job celebrating it though, don't we? He came to this earth, yeah, 33 years he walked across Palestine one step closer each day to the ultimate destination, the cross, why? to shed his blood so that our sins could be forgiven and so that our shame could be covered. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ came to this earth, died for us, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Let me just tell you, you will never be righteous enough on your own to overcome the shame. You'll never be good enough to overcome the shame. Only the righteousness of Jesus Christ can cover the shame. We're gonna be talking about that in this series. Maybe that's what you need to hear. Here's the second thing that entered the human race because of sin, blame. Came right on the hills. I mean, if you, if you deal with shame, you're gonna deal with blame because you're not gonna take all the responsibility, right? Verse 11, chapter three. And he, this is God speaking, he said, who told you that you were naked? Nobody, they figured it out all by themselves. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, that huzzy right there. You know, the woman you gave me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? Look what the woman said. Devil made me do it. See, she's just, I'm not going to take responsibility. The serpent deceived me and I ate. But what I want you to see, I want you to see how sin separates. Immediately they're separate from God, separated from God, but immediately they're also separated from each other. In fact, notice how, how Adam in one sentence blames not one but two people. Verse 12, the woman you put here with me. In other words, God, I was doing fine when it was just me and the monkeys, you know? <laughs> Wasn't until she showed up, the problem started, and God, need I remind you, you gave her to me. I mean, think about this. Who do we blame when we mess up? God, why did you put me in this family? God, why did you allow me to get in this situation? God, why did you allow me to marry this person? We blame. Not my fault I'm like this. You can't blame me for doing this. We do it all the time. I'll never forget when we lived in California. You know, it's funny how you get married and you kind of have certain ways of doing things. Like if you go to my house, Laura always parks on the left, I always park on the right. I don't know why we do that. You go to a hotel, you always sleep on the side of the bed that you sleep. I mean, we just do this, right? So I'm pulling into the garage. We're in, in Southern California, and the boys had left one of their little riding things. And I, I kind of wasn't focused. I, pulled, I ran right over it. Do you think I said, wow, I should pay more attention and be more careful? No. Hey! Who left this in the middle of the garage? You gotta blame somebody, right? Or I get up in the morning, I have a cup of coffee. And I'm a good husband, I've been trained 36 years. I know put my coffee cup in the dishwasher, but I should rinse it out, I don't. And sometimes I put it in, and as it's dripping out, I realize it's dripping on dishes that Laura turned on in and washed them before we went to bed. Do you think I say, wow, I should be more careful and pay more attention? Mm -mm. It's like. Why didn't somebody empty the dishwasher, you know? We always, we do this all the time. And then this is what happens. We pass it on to our children. See, uh, my boys, when they were in school, believe it or not, there were times they got in trouble. I don't know where they got it from. Laura, I think, pray for her. You know, I don't know where else they would get this stuff. <laughs> the school would call me. You know what amazed me? I'd go to the school, I'd talk to the principal, I'd talk to the teacher. Never my kid's fault. According to them, teacher's fault. She didn't like them. I mean, they were just a victim. They never took response. It's, it's her fault. This is how we live our lives. We don't like the shame, 
So we have to have somebody to blame. I, I came across this, I love this, it's one of my favorite poems. I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed to find out why I killed the cat and blacked my husband's eyes. He laid me on a downy couch to see what he could find, so this is what he dredged up from my subconscious mind. When I was one, my mommy hid my dolly in a trunk, and so it follows naturally that I am always drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day, and this is why I suffer now from kleptomania. At three, I had the feeling of ambivalence toward my brothers, and so it follows naturally, I poisoned all my lovers. But I am happy, now I've learned the lesson this is taught, that everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. I mean, we laugh, but isn't that what we do? I'm not taking responsibility for this. I gotta blame somebody, so th there's shame, there's blame. Here's the third word, fame. A result of the fall. I wanna be known, I wanna be important, I wanna be recognized, I wanna come out on top. Let me show you what I'm talking about. If you get to Genesis chapter three, 14, 15, 16, 17, through verse 19, God begins to lay out the curse or the consequences, and I wanna stress this, that Adam and Eve brought on themselves when they sinned because of their disobedience. You can read that for yourself. But I want you to see what Adam does immediately in verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve. Did you know that? God didn't name Eve Eve. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And I know what you're thinking. Well, that, that's not bad. I call my wife worse than that all the time. See, that's kind of what we think. But understand, this is what's really happening here. This is what's going on. Adam immediately, and I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you. Adam immediately separates from his wife. Okay, if God didn't name her Eve, and her name wasn't Eve before the fall, what was her name? How did Adam respond? Hey, you, hey, hot chick, God took out of my rib. Come, you come over here, come on. How, how did Adam respond to Eve? What was her name? I'm gonna tell you what her name was. And most of us don't know this. Her name was Adam. His name was Adam, her name was Adam. This is what it says, Genesis chapter five, verse two. And I'm reading the King James because it's, for some reason, and maybe even Bibles do this sometimes, trying to get politically correct. King James is the last version that actually did this correctly, if you could read the Hebrew. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day they were created. Literally, her name was Adam female. He was Adam male. It went back to how God created them. Remember, he brought them together and they became one. By the way, this is Genesis 5 after the fall. Do you know what Adam said in Genesis 2 right before the fall? Listen how he talked about her. The man said, verse 23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Literally, the Hebrew word means brought out of man, for she was taken out of man. In other words, when he saw her, he says, wow, you are a part of me. We're like this. We are one. But now you get to chapter 5, and he says, we're different. We're separate. Now, you're not Adam female. Now, you're Eve, mother of all living. And some of you are still thinking, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, women are mothers. Here's the problem. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Adam labeled her. After the fall, Adam basically said, this is what your job is going to be. From here on out, your job is to bear me kids. And that's why for years, women have been taught that their basic pur purpose in life is to have babies, you know, barefoot and pregnant, right? But you also have to understand that's why so many women go through such incredible depression when eventually their kids are gonna grow up, they're going to leave home. 
And they're so depressed because this is what they're thinking. Wow, I have fulfilled my purpose for existing. What do I do now? Now I'm going to talk about this in a few weeks. We're going to look at the book of Esther. Three different women in the book of Esther talking about how to identify your purpose, your calling in life, how to be the, the, the woman that God created you to be. But this is what I want you to hear this weekend, and it'll probably get me emails. In fact, it already has, but here we go. Ladies, being a mom is not your primary purpose in life. Being a mom is not your primary reason for existing. God has a calling. God has a purpose. Understand, God has a gifting on every person, male or female. And I, I'll be honest with you, and Laura and I talked about this last night, I've struggled with this in our marriage. And the reason I struggle and it caused tension at times is because Laura has been called and gifted by God to work in family ministries. And I got to tell you, she's great at it. She oversees a staff, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 people who oversee everything from the, the infants up through Kid City all the way up to college. She oversees all of that staff. It's phenomenal, the job that she does. But I got to tell you something. When I'm not focused on her or God and I'm focused on myself, I'm not always thrilled about God calling her to do that. And it, 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 it creates some tension and some strife. See, I want her just for me. I want her there when I'm there. I want her there when I'm not there. I want her there when I get there. You know, I just want her there for me all the time. So I have to constantly remind myself that Laura is just as called and just as gifted to do what she does as I am to do what I do. In the same way, every woman, every one of you sitting here, you have a calling and a gifting from God when the kids are home and when the kids are gone. You got to figure out what that is. But your highest calling is not to be a mom. In fact, if you wanted to look at it from a theological perspective, you have a much higher calling to be a wife than to be a mom. Being a wife takes much more precedence in God's perspective over being a mom. But that's not your highest calling to be a wife. And trust me, I believe in the family with every fiber of my being. I believe we should be great husbands and wives and moms and dads. But your highest calling is not your role as a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife. Your highest calling is that of a child of God. And there is a call of God on every man and every woman. But part of the fall was this idea. This is your job. This is your role. You do it. Since we're having so much fun, let me show you one other thing from this passage. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. God is speaking to Eve, and he's saying this is going to be the curse. And so basically he's saying, women, this is the result of the fall. Now look at this. Women love this. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, right now, some of the men just check back in. Like, say that again, Mike. Say that again. Genesis 3, why? Because your new life verse is going up on the refrigerator everywhere. Let me say it again. <laughs> so what God says to the women, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And this is what some of you guys think this says. She wants some of this <laughs> all the time. And I get to boss her around. It's a win-win. Understand, this is before the fall, so don't get so excited. This, this, this is the curse. This is the result of the fall. Now, let me just tell you something. As men, we were never meant to rule. We were never meant to rule over. That's not how God originally designed it. We were created to servant lead, not dominate. 
In fact, let me tell you what this word means, and it will provide some clarity. The Hebrew word for desire is teshua. Let's just say it together. That way we'll all know one Hebrew word. Ready? Here we go. Teshua. Teshua, like teshua the dog, okay? If you were doing teshua, right? Teshua. This is what the word means. To be independent from and to dominate. That's what it means. To be independent from and to dominate. Now, don't forget, God is saying, let me show you the consequences of you guys disobeying me, the consequences of your sin, right? He's saying this, ladies... You're going to do everything you can to try and dominate him, to try and fix him, to try and change him. But at the end of the day, he's going to dominate you. Now understand, God isn't saying that he's happy about that. He's not even saying that he planned it that way. He's saying, this is what you brought on yourself. Now, let me just add a little, just a little breath of fresh air here. In Christ, the curse is broken. See, in Christ, we don't have to dominate each other. In Christ, we get to serve each other. In Christ, we get to love each other. But when we're not walking in Christ, when we're not living as God designed it, if we're outside the parameter, it becomes a competition. In fact, it's interesting, the root of, of this word, Teshua, is competition. Basically, what God was saying this, as husbands and wives, as men and women, does this sound like the culture we're living in? You will always be competing with each other. But he's going to come out on top. And then we pass this on to our kids. In fact, if you continue reading, and we won't get into it this weekend, you go over a little bit further, and you find out that Adam and Eve had two boys, Cain and Abel, and they both presented an offering to God, but Cain didn't obey God. He didn't present it within the guidelines. He accepted Abel. He rejected Cain, and Cain got so mad, he killed his brother Abel. Competition. We grow up as adults. It's amazing how we continue to compete, you know? You get together with your married friends. You talk about how big your house is that you're building, how big your raise was, how expensive your car is, how smart your kids are. We even do this as grandparents. They're so smart. He's only one and he knows the letter A. By 26, he'll have the whole alphabet down. Teacher says she's never met anybody smarter her whole life. We have these conversations all the time. All of this stuff comes from the fall of the first family, the spirit of competition. And listen to that weather. We're not going anywhere, so I got about two more hours of stuff. All right? I'm just kidding. I got a flight to catch. But anyway, shame, blame, fame. That's what's created this mess. What's the answer? That's next week. You got to come back next week. But I will tell you this, it begins with Jesus. That shouldn't surprise you. Don't, at church, don't all answers eventually you know, lead back to Jesus, right? But it, this is interesting. Did you know that Jesus had family issues? Did you know that? I mean, he, he kind of had a dysfunctional family going on. And I know that offends some of you, but think about this. When Jesus was 30, he went public with his ministry. He's out doing miracles. But he would make statements like this. If you've seen me, you've seen God. Saying what? I'm God. Now look what it says in Mark chapter 3, verse 21. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. They thought he was a lunatic. Now I know if you grew up Catholic, you don't think Mary had any kids. You just need to read the gospel. She had other children. And she said, go get him. He's embarrassing the family, right? So he understands what it means to be part of a dysfunctional family. But I want you to understand this, and this is what we're going to talk about in this series. Jesus came to repair the family that was broken in Genesis chapter 3. There is hope. 
In fact, I found the greatest prophetic verse. It's in Genesis chapter 28, verse 14. God is speaking to Abraham, and he's talking about, through Abraham, I'm going to build this incredible, this incredible nation through you. But I want you to notice something maybe you've missed before. Your descendants will be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, the east, the north, the south. In other words, you're going to fill the world up, Abraham, your descendants. But notice this, and this is a prophetic reference to the Messiah, to Jesus. And in your, you and your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What God was saying, Abraham, the one that eventually is going to come through your seed, your line, the Messiah, the Savior, he's going to bless the families. He's coming to fix families. The answer really is Jesus. So next week, we're going we're, we're gonna to start talking about, okay, how do we do this? How do we, how do we repair the family? How do we put the fund back in dysfunctional? And uh, we're going to look at what I think is one of the most dysfunctional families in the Bible. But this is what you're going to learn through the, through the story of, of this family. You're going to find out there is hope for those of you who caused and are causing the dysfunction. And at the end of the day, we know who we are, right? But you're also going to see there's hope for the one who would identify themselves as the victim of the dysfunction. And we have hope because we have a Savior. And we're going to talk about that next week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us this time together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is absolute truth. And Father, that should bring us such incredible security, just like our children need boundaries. And we, we just know from all the studies that the kids are so much better, not when they're free thinking and there are no boundaries. Kids are so much better. The result is so much better when there are firm, crystal clear, black and white boundaries. You've given us a book that contains 66 books written over many generations that talk about the coming of the Messiah that has given us clear-cut boundaries, precepts, principles, truths that we can mold our lives to. And when we follow life, God, when we follow your instruction, God, of your word, the Holy Bible, we begin to experience life as you intended it to be experienced. And we position ourselves to be blessed by you. Father, the answer is in Jesus Christ because we learn in the New Testament that in Christ, we can love as we've been loved. In Christ, we can forgive as we've been forgiven. We can extend mercy as mercy has been extended to us. We can extend grace as grace has been extended to us. But it's only through Jesus Christ living in us. So at the end of the day, help us all to understand that's where the repair begins. When we repair our relationship with you, that's made possible by the gift of your son who died for us so we could be reconciled back to you. We thank you for that. We praise you for what you're going to do in this series. In your name, amen.